not here today. He asked me to fill in for him, so it's my great privilege uh, to be speaking with you guys today. We'll be in Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And we're going to talk about what fear brings. And I remember asking Paul when I told him about what my topic was and my title for this. I said, is it all right if I use a misleading title? Because I want to pique people's interest in this topic. Uh, We're not going to talk about the negatives of what fear brings. But we're going to actually see what in Scripture has to say about what fear brings. What is the result of fearing God? And as you guys are turning there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you guys have ever played the game of tennis? Raise of hands. Okay, good. Everyone seems to have. Okay, now let me ask a slightly different question. How many of you guys would consider, consider yourself good at tennis? Yeah, okay. So when I was about 12, me, my friend, and his family would go down to the courts over here in High Spire and play tennis. And of course, as a 12-year-old, your main goal of the game of tennis is just to take the racket and hit that ball as hard as you can over that net. And I didn't really understand the concept of the game at that point, and so my friend and his family were explaining, you know, you want to hit the ball over the net, but in this area, uh, if it hits there and the opponent misses it, you know, you get a point. If you hit it out of bounds, the other people get a point. I was like, okay, I kind of get that. But still, down deep in my heart, I just wanted to take that racket and smack that ball as hard as I could. But have you ever thought about why, why are there lines in the game of tennis? It's simple, right? To tell what's in, what's out. Now, for some of you tennis players, the line in tennis, if you hit the line, is the ball in or out? It's in. Good, yeah. Some other sports have it that if the ball hits the line, it's out. Okay, so... What's interesting, though, is that this line defines clearly what's inside the boundaries and outside the boundaries. Could you imagine playing tennis with no boundaries, with no lines? Could you imagine playing any sport with no lines or no boundaries? It'd be a little chaotic, okay, just to say the least. But what's interesting is we have lines that define what's in, what's out. And sometimes those lines get a little blurry. In fact, we even have lines today in other realms, uh, in other areas of life, uh, that we can usually see what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, what's just, what's unjust, right? There's usually a line that tells you. But what's interesting is over the last two weeks, everyone here can relate to this. You've been seeing on the news over and over again, Charlottesville. This is a pretty... uh, Still, I would think, a a very raw topic for a lot of people to talk about. A lot of emotions go with what what you see on the screen. But there's a line here, isn't there? Lines have been drawn. Who's on what side? And clearly, and I think the news has done this, is that they're portraying two sides, right? It's one extreme or the other. You're, You're on one of these two things. And the line starts to get blurred a lot of times. And no one really knows whose side is... Right? Whose side is wrong? And what I want to just, what we're going to talk about today is this idea of this line. Because God in Scripture is going to make it clear those who fear Him will be the line to determine those people who are doing right and who are doing wrong, those people who are serving God and those people who are not serving God. And that's really what Malachi 3 16 through 18 is going to be about. 
We're going to see that the Israelites that feared the Lord, they're going to be remembered by God. They're going to be valued by him. But most importantly, they're going to be the living example or the line, the distinction of what's right and wrong. And we're going to see that those who fear God today, while we're spared eternal destruction, while we are valued by God still, we're to be examples of this as well. But before we read the passage together, I just want to explain a little bit of the context. Because I'm sure all of you have read Malachi over the last week here. Probably some of you haven't. I try to post stuff on Facebook every now and then. It doesn't always work. The book of Malachi is interesting to me. For some real reason, I keep coming back over and over to to this book. And I just love it. Because simply what it is, is, is the prophet going to the people of Israel, to Judah. And he has a message from God. God is criticizing what the priests and the people are doing. The priests have been offering really poor and bad sacrifices. You know, I just talked with the kids last week. I asked them, I said, do you guys remember what God asked the people to do? And he said, yeah, they're supposed to bring perfect blem- or, uh, spotless lambs to sacrifice. Yeah, that's right. Well, the priests, however, here were doing not that. <laughs> they were offering the sick, the wounded, the lame, the blind, the falling apart to God. God simply states in the first chapter, he says, look, give this to your governor. Would he like this? If he wouldn't like it, why do you think I would? And he goes on to criticize the priests are robbing him. They're taking things that belong to God and they're giving it to themselves. They're teaching people not really to obey the commands of God, but it's okay to slack off sometimes. And then he he lays into Judah, the people of Judah. And he says, you're being faithless. You are not being faithful to me. You've married yourself off to other gods. And yeah, by the way, your marriages are a sham. You're not being faithful to your wife. You're divorcing them. You're sending them away and covering yourself in violence. And so God just lays the people out, gives them this command. And what's unique about this passage is 16 through 18 is this turning point. It's actually what's happening to the people after they hear this message. And we just get a small clip it before it jumps back to God's word for the people. So we get into verses 16 through 18, and it says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and one who does not serve him. So the first thing that we see in today's passage that we want to talk about is this. The Lord's attention is on those who fear him. So the people's response to God's word coming at them, to God criticizing their worship, their acts of service to them, their lifestyles, is this, that there were certain people who got together who feared the Lord, and they started to talk with one another. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what they talked about, but we can assume if these are people who feared the Lord, what are they trying to talk about then? Probably the best way how to respond to his word. How are we going to change from these wicked ways? How are we going to change from being faithless to faithful? But the key thing is that these are the people who have feared the Lord. 
that are speaking about these things. And so the Lord says, look, I'm going to pay attention. So I find this interesting. The Lord pays attention and hears them or heard them. It means literally to listen, to incline one in the ears, and then to respond to it. God sees their hearts. He sees their actions. He sees they're going in the right direction. He takes notice of them, and he's going to act upon this. And this is key, right? The Lord pays attention to those who fear him. And it says that he writes their names in the book of remembrance or the scroll of remembrance. Now, you may be asking, okay, Peter, this, is, this seems kind of weird. I, I don't remember really seeing this a whole lot through the Bible as I've read through it. Well, Exodus 32, 32 makes it clear. Moses points to that there seems to be a book that God keeps, that those who are faithful to his name are written in this book. We see it in Revelation as well. But I think one of the best illustrations that we see of what this book is like is in Esther 6, 1 and 2. If you guys remember the, the story of Esther, what happens when the king can't sleep at night? Who does he call in? One of his scribes to read the history of his kingdom. What's been going on? So he can remember what has been happening. And so what's happening here in this passage is very similar. God is writing the names of the faithful, those who fear him properly, into this book. And he says, I will remember them. What's really cool is I found this quote actually pretty helpful. It says, this scroll or book of remembrance means that a permanent remembrance of the faithful and reverent response is being kept in heaven. This provides assurance that when God deals with individuals and this world, he will not forget their submission to him. Those who fear God will be remembered. And then we see this. The two qualifications of the people. They not only fear the Lord, but they esteem his name. So maybe you're asking yourself, okay, so what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, in the context, certainly it means to, to, to respond appropriately to God's word and to live out a new action. But it, it does go a little bit deeper than that. Jerry Bridges, a pastor, evangelist, and what we might call a modern theologian, said it this way. It's to stand in all of his person, to submit to his authority, and to dread his displeasure. It's a profound sense of reverential awe toward God. And I really actually like that definition, but I think it's, we can simplify it. Fear, fearing the Lord, is simply understanding who God is, who we are, and the power that God holds. It's understanding who he is, who we are, and the power that God holds. Certainly, we should stand in some fear of God. But we don't have to today as Christians because we are in Christ. We escape the final judgment, the eternal judgment that we'll talk about in just a little bit. As this passage does note. But certainly, we should still stand in fear and worship and admire, have a reverential awe toward God because he is great. He is awesome. He is powerful. He is majestic. And he is just, and we are not. And this should leave us in some sense of awe and fear. But it's not this necessarily dread. It's not worry that he's just going to strike us dead. But we'll talk about a little, or what this 
means and how, how it applies to us today just a little bit later. But they also esteem his name, which means to hold up, to credit with, to high and hold in high regards. Many of you guys know this. The Jews did not really ever speak the name Yahweh. They didn't really like using God's name. And so when they would read the scrolls, and especially in the New Testament, and I'm going to point to Isaac because Isaac's here. I love picking on him. Isaac, what, what name did they use in the New Testament? Instead of Yahweh, they focused on the word. Okay, Elohim, the general sense of deity, but Adonai, right? Which means Lord or Master, right? And so they would use this name because they held Yahweh in such high regards they didn't want to speak it. But the people of Israel in this passage were starting to lose that esteem. They didn't see God as that important anymore. It was starting to lose the seriousness and weight of it. Now, let me give you two examples of what this looks like in ours. Because, yeah, fear, fear the Lord, esteeming his name, it, it's, it's a difficult concept to wrap your head around. But uh, how many of you guys cut the grass? Guys or women? Guys in general sense. Okay, good. How many of you guys know that every so often you have to clean the underbelly of the mower? Right? Stuff builds up in there. Um, what happens if you get something tied around the, uh, the blades and stuff and you have to get under there to clean it? You, you, have to, you have to get it all clean. But what could happen? What is a possibility of happening uh, if that blade starts turning while you're cleaning it? Fingers are gone, right? Snow plows work the same way. You know, big old warning right on the front thing. Do not ever stick your hand in this thing. Okay. Sensible, right? You know what could happen. If you stick your hand in a snowplow, your hand's gone. Uh, it's done. The thing is, we understand what could happen if this blade starts turning, right, in a mower. Our fingers can go. It has that power. And we treat it with respect, right? We don't just go in nonchalantly and start cleaning. We make sure everything is unplugged, that it won't do this on us. I talked to Paul about this because my mower, I, I just did this to my mower last week, and uh, he just made the point. Look, make sure the spark plug is unplugged out of that thing. That way it, it won't jump on you like that. I said, okay, that makes sense. You know, we have a respect toward this machine because we know what it can do. We know the power it holds, and we're careful around it, right? Now let's, let's go to my second illustration, an open flame or a gas stove. How many of you guys have cooked with one of these? Okay, yeah. You've probably heard me use this illustration. I, I think it's a good one. When you're cooking with it, you know that a gas stove can get hot. That flame is strong. And if you're careless, if you're not paying attention to what you're doing, you could either burn your food or burn yourself, right? You know that the flame is powerful, that the flame is hot, and you're careful around it. Now, of course, I've cooked in the kitchen, and I know that there are times that we just we start to, to lose it. We start to just not really pay attention to the flame anymore until that moment that we get burned yet again and then we jump back to being careful around it. That's having a proper respect toward the thing. We know the power it holds. We know what it can do if I'm not careful around it. And so we change our actions when we're around those things. And that's the same thing that's happening in the scripture here. 
God's saying these people are starting to understand who God is yet again. They're understanding the power he holds, and they're responding appropriately to it. And so he says, those people, those who are responding appropriately to my word, who have placed their faith in me, will be remembered. Their names are written before me. So the next thing we see in this passage is then, what is the result of those who fear God? What is the result of fear? What does fear bring? Fearing God does this. It says, those who fear the Lord are his possession. And what I really like is, it starts off, they shall be mine. My son's nine months old. Uh, In fact, we were just back in the nursery here during the Sunday school hour. And I'm reminded that he's starting to learn this idea and concept that things belong to him. And of course, his passy, of course, no one else wants his passy. But you know, as a dad, I've been trying to get him to try and like pop the passy out and give it to me. It's not working. Uh, He just says really two syllables, ma and pa. Uh, Ma, most of the time, means mine. uh, And he holds on to it. And it's really hard. I don't know what is up with his grip strength. It's hard to pry some things out of his hand. Uh, Yesterday, we were just at home, and he got an electrical cord. So what happens? You know, trying to pry it out of his hand. It wasn't plugged in. Don't worry about that. Uh, But the thing is, like, he gets a hold of something, and he's just, it's mine. That's what's happening here, too. God says, these people who fear me, they are my possession. Nothing's taking them out of my hand. They belong to me now. They belong to me now. No one else is going to claim this group of people. No one else has a claim to these people. They are mine. And he says this, that they are my treasured possession, meaning that they're valuable to God. They are part of God's kingdom. It sounds sort of like a property term here, right? They're not only his, but they have value to him. And then he goes on and he says, I will spare them. Malachi chapter 4, if you continue to read on through the short verses in the upcoming section here, it just simply states that the wicked, they're going to be trampled upon, but the righteous will come out with joy. He's going to expand upon what he's sparing them from in this passage. We know this as Christians from the rest of the, the Bible, that they're being spared from separation from all eternity from God. They're being spared from hell. They're being spared from destruction, from pain and suffering. And it's all because these people who fear God are now being claimed by God and they're part of his possession. And then the nextly, we see this, that they're going to be used as a line of distinction. Now, what's interesting here is the, the word distinction, distinguish, or to discern. Uh, depending on what translate you have, translation you have in front of you, uh, these words will show up. In Hebrew, this word isn't even there which is the fun thing. So it means that to help us understand, the writers put this in. Distinction, right? We talked about the tennis line. How do you know what's in or out? If there was no line there, how could you tell? You wouldn't be able to. It would all just look like one court, just one solid pavement. Now, the picture I had up also had a green and a blue outline, so you could see it that way. But the line's there to help you distinguish or determine what's in, what's out. What's right, what's wrong. And the book of Malachi is telling us that the people who fear God become this line. The literal translation is, and you will see again 
what is right and wrong. The people who fear God will be on what side of that? Simply what side? The right side. Good. The people who do not fear God will be on what side? The side of wickedness, the wrong side. Good. And then he simply goes on and he says, look, not only will you see the difference between the righteous and the wicked that have been at odds forever, it seems like. Proverbs 10, 25. I love how they portray this. No more will the wicked be around, but the righteous will be established forever. Then Proverbs 11, 8. The righteous will be delivered, while the wicked will bring trouble upon themselves. These two forces have always been at odds. But there is a line that separates them. And it all starts with the fear of God. Do you fear God? That's what determines it. And then he goes on and says, look, you're going to see who is serving God and who is not serving God. Now, in this context, it's real interesting. He makes it a very clear point. How do you know who's serving God? Well, after this long laundry list of you're doing things wrong, he's going to make it clear. If you're living for God, you're going to start obeying God instead of disobeying. You're going to start listening to God and his word instead of ignoring it. You're going to give instead of stealing from God. You're going to be faithful to your spouses and faithful to God instead of being faithless and going through with divorce. It's simple obedience. He says, those who serve God are just obeying me. And you're going to see that. Because again, fear creates this line. It separates these two people. Not fear of just worry, but fear of God, of understanding properly who he is and what he's like. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, this is what I call our cross-centered point. I've been doing this in our Good News service, so if you've been with me there, you'll understand kind of where I'm going with this. But those who fear the Lord are those who turn from their sins, repent, or acknowledge what Christ has done for them. They cling to God for help and salvation. They obey the words that are sent to them. Today, those people are called Christians. They're called the church. Those who obey the word of God and put their faith in Christ for their salvation, for their sins, are spared and treasured by God. They are his people. They are his representatives, his examples in this world of what is right and wrong to do. They are the example of what it means to truly serve God. There's a lot of people out there claiming to serve God, but they're not doing it. How can we tell the difference? It all starts with, what do you fear? Their fear is toward Christ and what he has done for them on the cross, and they humbly place their faith in his work. You see, fearing the Lord starts with trusting in Christ. Why? Because, well, if you understand properly who God is, that he is a holy, holy being that is perfect in all of his ways, and we realize who we are before him, that we're sinners... Uh, that we've done the wrong thing, that we continue to do the wrong thing, we continue to want to do our own thing, we have to understand that God has to bring justice. Right? What's fair is fair. Don't you guys all want justice in your life? I hope so. To some extent, right? You don't want to be wronged. But here's the interesting thing. God is perfectly just, so he has to judge sin. He has to deal with evil. 
But what's interesting is here in our passage, right, he says, I'll spare them as a son who serves his father. Well, how can he spare them? Well, it's those who put their trust in him, who are faithful to him, who trust in him for their salvation. Now, back in Israel, they had the promise of the Messiah, the coming one. And a lot of people looked forward to that. They clung on to that promise. But nowadays, we look back and we say we have that promise. That promise has already been acted upon. We can put our faith and trust in God. We can put our faith and our trust in Christ and what he's done on the cross for us. When we fear God, our response to Christ must be that we trust him for salvation. And Christ makes it possible for us to live this all out. Now, I want to talk about our application and principles here. The first one is that it all starts with fearing God. Over and over again, throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this concept will come up. Fear God, fear God, fear God. Why? Why is this so important? Well, Romans 3, 10 through 18 says this. Most of you guys know it. I don't think I have to say it. But no one seeks God. All have gone astray. All have gone to wicked ways. The characteristic of a person who is not following God or one who does not fear God is that they simply don't listen to him. And what it does is Paul paints a beautiful picture that those who truly put their faith and trust in God have this characteristic of fear in them. 1 Peter 2.17 makes it very clear. He says, fear God and respect others. Matthew 10.28, Jesus makes it clear to the crowds around him. Don't fear those who can destroy your body. But he says, fear those who can destroy both the body and the soul. We need to have a proper fear of who God is as Christians. Now, what does this look like? Well, the first one is simply turning from sin and to Christ. We need to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. Why? Because we know our sin's not helping us. We know that our sin is no good, that God will have to judge that. And we need to keep turning to Christ and saying, no, I, I rely, I put my faith, I put my trust in him only. This is where it starts. The next thing is obedience to God's word, right? The people of Israel are called to obey his word. They're challenged with this entire message, this entire book. Will you obey me? Will you go back to honoring me like you're supposed to? Will you go back to worshiping me instead of giving me just your leftovers, this, this shallow stuff, the stuff that I don't want? Will you obey me? And the people who respond here with fear say, yes, we will do this. And God says, good, because if you do, you'll be remembered. You'll be a part of my possession. You'll be treasured, and you'll be saved. Then we need to recognize our all and humility before God. Again, recognizing who he is and who we are before him. The next thing is that we need to understand those who fear are the valuable and the saved possession of Christ. Those who fear are the valuable and saved possession of Christ. Christians are seen with value to God, thus the sending of his son. Though it's only through Christ that we receive this valuability. 
1 Peter 2.9 says this, that we are a people for God's own possession to proclaim his excellencies. Galatians 4.7 paints it this way, you're no longer slaves, but you're a son, and if you're a son, you're an heir through God. Ephesians 1.11-14, if you don't believe that God values you, then just listen to this. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I love this, because I think this passage just makes it so clear. It's through Christ God has made us valuable. He's given us everything at his, or in his possession. Ephesians 1 paints it very clearly, right? In him we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has held nothing back from you. And I want you to understand that, because that's a tough concept for a lot of people to understand. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he gives you everything. Galatians makes it very clear. When you, when you obey, when you follow after Christ, it's not so that you can gain more things. There's nothing left for you guys to gain. He's already made it available to you. He's given it to you. The big question is, are you taking advantage of it? Are you using all of it? It's at our disposal we need to take that advantage. God sees us as valuable, especially those who fear him. Now, I want you to understand, if you, you were with me in Jonah, you, you remember I said God loves all of his creation. He has compassion on all of his creation. He values all of his creation. That is true. He does. He values each and every one of us in here, saved or unsaved. But what's interesting is those who are saved, those who fear God properly, those who have put their trust in Christ are seen as a valuable possession of God. They are possessed by God. Those who do not put their faith or trust in him, those who are wicked, evil, whatever we want to call it there, are not owned by God. They're owned still by sin. Yes, he has compassion and he still sees value to them, but they're not his because they're not willing to be his. Now, what's interesting is we need to understand as Christians as well, we have a value, we are God's possession, nothing anyone, nothing anyone can do can kill us or harm us, right? We don't fear the people who can kill the body, we fear God who can kill both body and soul. And so this should just give us strength and courage to continue to do what Christ has called us to do, to go out and proclaim the gospel to other people, Why? Because God still values them and he wants them to be a part of his valued possession. And so we need to take courage because we are owned by God. Remember, you are God's child. You are God's son. You are part of his kingdom. There is nothing anyone can do, nothing Satan can do, nothing any spiritual attack can do to take you away from him if you've put your faith and trust in him. And that should give us courage to go and do the uncomfortable things, the scary things, the things that might be a little bit dangerous, to reach out and grab people and save them from the clutches of hell. And it all starts because when we fear God, we gain a new value. We are part of his possession, 
And it's all because of what Christ has done. So if you don't understand what Christ has done in your life, if you don't trust Christ as your Savior, this is pretty pointless to you. You you don't really get all of this. But if you do start to understand the concept of who Christ is, what is it that God has done for you, what he sacrificed, what he gave for you, you'll understand how he sees you as valuable. He was willing to give up his son for you on the cross. And then lastly, we see this. Those who fear Christ are examples to others. Those who fear Christ are examples to others. Just last week, we were finishing up this idea of the local church and the Good News Service and what they're called to do. I made a point during that time that church leadership was established. Part or part of its purpose for its establishment is that the elders and the deacons are examples to the body of Christ what it looks like to live for God. That's why they're held in such high position. It's why the qualities of leadership there are so high. It's because those who lead the church are the examples for the church to follow after. And what this passage makes very clear in Malachi, they will be the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and the one who does not. Christians, if you fear God, you are the examples to others of what it looks like to live for Christ. You are the examples to others of what it looks like to live for Christ. You are the ones who will show them what it means to fear God properly. You are the ones that will show them how to live for Christ properly. You are the ones... He will show them how to serve others in love properly. You are called to be examples if you fear God. Naturally, this line will be drawn, and you will stand out. There is no doubt about that. Jesus makes it very clear. If you're going to follow after me, if you're going to fear God properly, if you're going to fear me and and live my way, persecution's coming. Don't worry. That's a promise to you. When you stand out, people will pick it. They will pick at you on it. And just as we've seen some violence happening over in the United States here over the last few weeks, Christians, you can expect the same thing because you're holding to truth and people don't like it. The wicked and the evil have never liked righteousness. They never liked God. And they want to keep pushing him away from them. And that means if you're going to stand as an example to others of what it means to live for Christ, they're going to push you away. They're going to fight you. They're going to pick on you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to try and tear your faith apart. But despite all of what they do to you, you're still called to be an example of Christ to them. So as we close here today, I want to just leave you with a few questions and with our big idea. I've been trying to do this to help you guys understand. If you take one thing away from this passage to help you understand why is this passage important, this is it. Those who fear God today will be spared from eternal destruction, from hell, from the lake of fire. This is key. This is, this is scripture. God just tells us the ultimate story, the ultimate end. Those who fear me will be spared. Those who don't will suffer. But it's not only that they'll be spared. 
they will be used by God to reveal to the world the distinction between right and wrong or the righteous and the wicked. If you choose here today to serve and follow after Christ, please note, you will stand out. You will be this line. And I pray that your fear is in the proper, proper perspective toward God. That you don't get distracted and that you don't start fearing what man can do. Fearing what other people are saying about you. But that you ultimately fear God himself. So I just want to leave you with a few questions here. Do you fear God like you're supposed to? How are you living? Are you living in obedience or disobedience to God's word? Do you have the right perspective of who God is and what he can do? Are you part of God's possession or family? Or are you an alien or an enemy to God's kingdom? What side of the line do you fall upon today? Does the church, Garden Chapel, does each and every Christian try to strive and live for God? Or are we just okay with serving them nonchalantly? That we just give them whatever we have. We don't give them our best, but we just give them what we can. Are you being an example of Christ to others? Are you being that example to your neighbor, to your coworkers, your boss, your house, your family, your clubs, your teams that you're on, your schoolmates? Are you being that example that you need to be? Are you willing to acknowledge your failures? Are you willing to acknowledge that, yeah, you know what, God, maybe I haven't been fearing you properly. Maybe I I need to get back on track. Are you willing to admit that to him? Are you willing to humble yourself and say, God, I was wrong. Forgive me and help me to move forward in proper fear of you. I know it's tough to swallow your pride and to admit that we're wrong, especially when it comes to God and especially when it comes to others. But we need to turn, and it starts with prayer. We need to pray to God and acknowledge these things if we've, if we've turned away, if we've forgotten to fear him properly, if we've gotten away from obeying his word. Because we need to remember, just as the Israelites that feared the Lord were remembered by God and used as a distinction between good and evil among their own people, those who fear God today are seen as valuable, they're remembered by God, they're spared from eternal destruction, and they will still be used by God as an example of what it means to serve and live for him. So are you doing that? Are you being that example? Do you have the proper fear of God? Will you choose to trust in Christ, to follow after his ways, and to remember to serve God only? Or will you choose to be distracted today by all the other things going on around you? Whether it be politics, whether it be family, whether it be relationships. Will you choose to serve God today? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship you, to study your word. Lord, as we just take some time to pray, to draw our hearts to to you and to talk to you, Lord, I want to pray that we all have a proper fear of you who trust in Christ. Help us to understand each and every day more and more what you're like. 
Help us to understand more and more how it is that we need to live for you and why it's so important. Lord, I I just pray for everyone in here that we will continue to fear you, that we will continue to be that line to this world of what it means to live for Christ, to live righteously, to be examples to others. Help us to fear you properly, Lord, in our lives and within our families. Help us to not get distracted by other things. Help us not to be worried about what others might say about us, how they might pick on us, how they might even possibly throw throw a fist at us. But help us just continue to be good examples to the people and the world around us of what it is to live for you and to fear you. God, I want to just pray that as we go out from here today that you will continue to work in our hearts and our minds. Allow your spirit to guide us, to convict us, to challenge us in what we need to change. Lord, we are just, again, thankful so much for what it is that you have done for us in Christ, how you've made us a valued possession that you own, Lord, and that nothing can take us out of your hand. And Lord, I pray that gives us courage as we go out into a dark world where we're going to be lights, where we're going to be salt. Help us to be courageous, to step out beyond our comfort zones, to go to the uncomfortable, to serve those and help those who are in need because we are your valued possession. Lord, we just again thank you for everything that is that you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God.